Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Tuesday, February the 7th, 2017. This is episode 1947 of the Survival Podcast. And it's a Just Jack show because it's a Tuesday show. That's when you tune into me and I, I pick something and we run with it. Today's show is going to be called Spirico's 12 Rules of Business. Yeah, we're going to do a business show. I realize we're into uh, the, the first week here of February in a new year, and it, the, this kind of time is springtime is when a lot of people start thinking about businesses. And, you know, it's one of my tenets of, uh, of, of freedom, of independence, of self-sufficiency, of self-reliance is entrepreneurship. But... I'm going to tell you that I get a lot of questions about starting a business that frankly scare the shit out of me. And so I wanted to do a show today where I'm going to go into more of a philosophy of how you manage and run, operate, found a business, then do this business or do that business, an operational level view uh, based on 12 rules. And I actually have more than 12 rules, but 12 fits into a show nicely, and I like even numbers, not odd, because I'm weird that way. And uh, so I decided on 12. And we'll go through those rules in a bit, and I'll tell you where I'm coming from with it before we get into them. For that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our two sponsors of the day. Hey, guys, what do you call a gun without ammo? Well, I call it an overpriced club or perhaps a way to get a loan at a pawn shop. So I keep a good supply of ammo around, and I always shop bulkammo.com when I need more. With shipping that's so fast, you'll wonder how they do it. All the common calibers and a discount for MSV members on top of it. Check out BulkAmmo.com today and give them a shot at your business. Recently, a new magazine showed up at my house. I had never seen it before. I had never heard it before. It was Self-Reliance Magazine. And I took a look at it and realized it was from the same people, Dave Duffy and his crew, that have been producing Backwoods Home. They sent me an introductory copy because I've been a subscriber to Backwoods Home for 20 years. I opened the pages and I was blown away. Pretty much you take what Backwoods Home has done for two decades or more up the production value, and take 100% focus on self-sufficiency and self-reliance topics, homesteading, canning, cooking, you name it, that type of thing, all of the politics stripped out, hardcore how-to. That's the new Self-Reliance magazine. You can learn more at self-reliance.com. And our TSP Business Directory supporter of the day is Webology, formerly known as Blake Development. They're a great source for website creation and outsourced software solutions. Blake's team designed our business directory, designed my Nine Mile Farm website, and many projects for TSP communities, community members like Win Upper Farms and Appalachian Tactical Academy. You can call Blake directly to discuss your needs at 205 636 8612-205-636-8612, or you can find them in the TSP business directory under Webology. Remember, you can have your business listed in the directory for as little as five bucks uh, every six months. That's a pretty cheap form of advertising to reach our entire community. Anyway, next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode, and Alex made this one tough. Um, three really great segments today. Flying saucers in the Roswell incident. Jackie Robinson makes it to the majors in uncovering the Dead Sea Scrolls. All of this occurred in 1947, and we're looking at the year 1947 because it is the year that is the episode. For that, though, i got some bullet points for you. 
Uh, notable births. Mitt Romney, Hillary Clinton, Dan Quayle, Camilla, Camille Pagela, uh, all born this year. In entertainment, Arnold Schwarzenegger, O.J. Simpson, Elton John, Tom Clancy, and Stephen King, all born this year. Of all those, the only one that has departed this earth so far is Tom Clancy. In the year in film, we have Road to Rio, one of many comedy Road to pictures starring Bing Crosby and Bob Hope. Miracle on 34th Street, a Christmas favorite starring a very young Natalie Wood. She really believed he was Santa. Um, I, I said yesterday, It's a Wonderful Life should be a movie that you've seen. So should Miracle on 34th Street. Those two should be in your, your Christmas movie collection, especially if you have kids that are watching all this new crap to be able to take them back to a simpler time when movies were actually based on real stuff. Um, real emotions, anyway. Real feelings, real thoughts, and real spirit. A gentleman's Agreement was also made this year. A journalist poses as a Jew to understand anti-Semitism in New York City. And this year in music, we have Near You from Francis Craig. It will become number one hit country song when George Jones and Tammy Wynette sing it again in 1976. And in this year, it's the number one song of the year, so you'll hear it, the original, that is, at the end of today's show. zippity doo If you ever wonder where that came from, that came from Disney's Song of the South. It was done first this year. And have yourself a Merry Little Christmas by the boss himself, Frank Sinatra. That's To me, that's the original boss there. Uh, in other news, the Doomsday Clock is seven minutes to midnight. The clock appears on the cover of a bulletin uh, of the Atomic Scientists. Chuck Yeager breaks the sound barrier, takes a Bell Rocket X-1 to Mach 1, and the AK-47 goes into production. AK-47 stands for... Kalashnikov's Automatic of 1947, and the Volkswagen Beetle comes to America. The Volkswagen means people's car. It was imagined by Hitler and designed by Porsche. It survived as a German product only because the Brits don't want it. I'd call that one a mistake. So let's take a look at flying saucers in the Roswell incident, because there's a lesson in propaganda there, and I'm thinking about propaganda for a reason you'll hear about in just a minute. Professor Mead Lane has begun his study of UFO contact reports. Don't get too excited. Lane is an English professor at the University of California, but he can read a contact report as well as anyone. These reports are coming from trained pilots who are seeing lights in the skies. Some of these lights are trailing their aircraft. Other lights are traveling at high speed, making fantastic and frankly impossible maneuvers. The public has taken an interest due to the fear of a Soviet attack on the USA, which is probably why a recently report, recent report of a flying pie plate has made national news. Flying saucers, alien abductions, and men in black will be on the agenda from now on. And one more thing, something has crashed near Roswell, New Mexico. The government boys show up, lickety-split, and carry away something that looks like body bags. In a press release, the government admits they have recovered, quote, a flying disc. They retract that statement the next day and call it a weather balloon carrying experimental dummies with instrument packages. Very strange. The whole incident is marked as classified. Apparently, weather experiments are classified nowadays. My take by Alex Shrug. First of all, let's give everyone the benefit of the doubt. The world has changed radically. Atomic bombs, radio, TV, and Flash Gordon have made people aware the world is not as solid and sure as they once believed. For your information, it's still not solid and sure. So in those days, it was easy to believe that men from Mars are Soviet superweapons. Maybe it was really an experimental balloon designed to fly over the Soviet Union and take pictures. Are there other explanations that fit the data? Yes, and some of them are pretty wacky. But one explanation that does fit is an alien visitor from outer space. The U.S. Air Force began to categorize these UFO sightings as part of Project Blue Book. 
They called them Close Encounters, and if that sounds like a good title for a movie, you are correct. A Close Encounter of the Third Kind is a visual sighting of UFO occupants or passengers, but the sightings have been so frequent that we would have had solid evidence of such visits by now, and if it were so... And that is the thing you are holding. Flash. Oh, never mind. That was just Swamp Cass. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. And what was that thing you were holding? Flash. Never mind. That was Swamp Gas trapped in a thermal pocket reflecting the light of Venus. And I'll get a, a, a decorator in here fast. Thanks. So the men in black thing there at the end. So, yeah, here's my thing. I don't think we're being frequently visited by aliens from beyond the moon or whatever. You know what that's from? That's from Simpsons. Um... And I, I think the entire idea is preposterous. I am one of these people, I do believe there's life somewhere else in the universe because, oh, I don't know, they pointed the Hubble telescope at a spot they called empty space and found, like, literally millions of galaxies. Not stars, galaxies in what they thought was a pocket of empty space. Millions of galaxies. Just think it's somewhere in all that shit there's something else alive. Maybe more advanced than us, maybe less. Probably both. But here's my take on if aliens were coming to Earth, or if aliens were aware of us and had the means to travel here, there are only three things that they would do. The first, and most likely if they were an advanced and peaceful society at this point, would be ignore us. They would ignore us. If they wanted to put an anal probe in your ass or something like that, if they had the ability to get here from you know a thousand million light years away, They could do that, and you would never know, and they wouldn't be cutting ears off cows and making crop circles. It's just preposterous. So the first thing they would do is just go kind of prime directed from Star Trek. Nope, not going to touch it. These people are not ready yet. The second and most likely thing would be they would come invade us and take our resources and make us their slaves or wipe us out or make us second-class citizens or do what any advanced society has typically done when it found a rich, beautiful place um, with inhabitants on it, and it wanted their resources. Okay, The reason they may not do that, even if they were malevolent, is we don't know what kind of life they would be. Maybe our planet is shitty for them, so they would go back and default to number one, ignoring us. And number three, and the least likely, because if you were advanced enough to get here, okay, and you weren't going to take over, and you looked at our society and the state that it is today, you'd probably realize that you're just going to make things worse if you show up. But the third option is they show up, they introduce themselves, and they take us on as like children. They mentor us. They say, like, here's the ways you could solve your problems, and, and, and they you know, kind of come in with that interference mode, but with, with positive agenda. Or some hybrid of, of two and three, where they pretend to be nice and, uh, you know, V, right? Okay, but, but flying around and disappearing and reappearing, showing up in Cletus's bedroom and anal probing them, just stupid. The government knew this even back then. So why did the government with Roswell say, it was a flying disc? Oh, no, it wasn't. They fed the propaganda. Here's what was going on at this time. Our government was evolving technology at an incredible rate, and they were in a real arms and space race with the Soviet Union. Absolutely. And they knew other nations would be developing competitive technology soon, i.e. China. Okay, So... What they said is, we're going to have all this shit going on, and some of it's going to get out. People are going to see our experimental aircraft, no matter how much we try to pretend uh, that Area 51 doesn't exist, etc. And, and stuff's going to be seen, and we're going to have shit crash that we're testing and, and, and what have you. So, if people start to chase this, this, this ghost of the UFO, and it has a little bit of credibility, but not much, 
And we even make it like we actually care by creating Project Blue Book, which, if memory serves me right, amounted to four people that went out and interviewed people to create the illusion of something going on, and then like filed a bunch of shit in, in a like cabinet no one looked at and no one cared about. Um, what will happen is when anything goes wrong, the people that see it will be labeled as these UFO conspiracy nuts, and we'll just say it was swamp gas, and the, the general public that we want to just keep disinterested in this will find it much easier to believe that this guy named Cletus that thinks he was anally probed is nuts than that we have this really super secret, you know, like stealth fighter thing going on. And it was a misdirection propaganda. And on that note, somebody sent me from this kind of time area, maybe maybe 10 years later, a video from archives.org on propaganda. I put it up on YouTube today, and it is on the blog. And it shows you how propaganda works, and it shows you that most propaganda is actually the application of logical fallacies on the general public and how effective it is, even though it's so transparent. You might like it, so you might want to check it out today. All right, folks, let me remind you that the main way that you can support the work that we do here at the Survival Podcast is by joining the Member Support Brigade, or MSB for short. And you hear me talk all the time about the over 60 discounts that you get, but let me tell you some of the other things you get. How about nine free eBooks, including Planting Trees the Low-Cost Easy Way, How to Build Top Bar Beehives, Basics of Sprouting, Building an EPAC Kit, Getting Your Household in Order, Building a Traditional Clay Oven, Building Aquaponic Systems, Secrets of Ballistic Strikings, and Squanto's Garden. All of those are free eBooks that you get only as an MSB member. You can also download MP4 versions of many of our YouTube videos. You get zip files of every episode of TSP ever produced. And how about videos of the workshops here at Nine Mile Farm that we do in the spring and the fall? All of that and more available as an MSB member. You can sign up for as little as 5 bucks a month to give it a shot or $50 a year. That comes out to 18.3 cents an episode. Okay, so let's get into it, man. Let's talk about business today. Let me explain to you, and the person that sent me this email may hear this show, and I don't want you to feel individually called out. I'm using it because it's convenient, and it's the most recent example of something like this, and I've changed it a little bit, but it's pretty close to what I got. Um, but I get stuff like this all the time, and here, here's the kind of thing I'll get. I'm thinking of buying 20 acres. My friend recommended your stuff on permaculture, And I want to build a permaculture business on my new land. Do you think it's possible to get to a decent income in two years? Whoa, shut the front door, guys. I'll tell you the truth. This scares the shit out of me. Some guy's going to make a major investment here. And I can tell by the email, he doesn't even really know what permaculture is yet. He has no experience in farming or ranching and likely very little or no business experience. And the reason I know this is because he's asking me that question that way. And I've never met him before. So it's almost like I want you to, to justify my my jump and, and my jump into total the bliss of ignorance that could become really real and really harmful really fast. And a guy could succeed with it. I just don't know. I can't advise that. And it's not just permaculture. It's all sorts of businesses. I mean, basically, it's the formula is this. I have X idea. This is my basic Y plan. Do you think it will work? And the only answer that's honest that I can give is I have no effing idea. I have no idea. Let me put it to you this way, to make it concrete for you. Let's say a friend of yours came to you, and you knew, you know me, and you know him, but he doesn't know me. All right? You got that? Like, so you're listening to my show. This is some friend totally disconnected from my show. He has no idea, you have no idea where he got the idea, but he comes to you and he says, hey, man, um, 
I found out about this stuff called podcasting. And there's a bunch of people doing these things. They're like radio shows on the Internet. You're like, yeah, I know. I listen to a few of those. He goes, he goes well, great. Well, here's my thing. I want to build a full-time income podcasting about subject XYZ. And not just enough to survive on and stop working, you know, a job. I want to make a really decent living. I want to make a good income. I want to be able to have the lifestyle I dream of from podcasting. And, and this is my idea, and this is the subject I want to do it in, and do you think my idea will work? Now, there's a piece of you that wants your friend to be happy and wants your friend to succeed and wants to believe in his dream. So what you think is, well, I know this guy named Jack, and Jack makes a great income. His show's been on nine years almost now. He does great. So sure, it will work, right? Sure, I mean, if Jack can do it, then you can do it. It's as obvious that the model, podcasting with a revenue model, ad dedication, ad subject matter, etc., is a viable business model. You can make a good living as a podcaster. But you see the other shoes, don't you? It's not the other shoe. It's the other shoes. It's like a metric shit ton of shoes about to drop here. Here's just a few of them. If you're comparing them to me and saying, well, can he be successful? Will this guy work as hard as Jack does? You don't know. You know, that's an idea. The idea phase of a business is where it's all talk and zero action. So there's no idea till the rubber meets the road. How about this? Is he as good or can he be as good or better at the mic than Jack is? Will this person effectively market their product? My product didn't just market itself. I had to market it, especially in the beginning, to get the word of mouth going. And I had to do things to get that to happen. Right? So will, will your friend be able to do this? Will they develop the necessary technical skills? Some of the stuff that you do here is, is rather technical. So you're either going to have to hire it, which is going to be an additional expense, and slow down your progress, or you're going to have to learn it. So are they going to be able to learn it? Do they have the aptitude or the desire to actually become decent with editing and you know publishing and all of that stuff, social media for promotion? Will they keep up the frequency that engages people long term? Because I honestly think if you want a full-time business podcasting and you're not doing it once a day, you're not going to get there. I don't think you're going to do it with a weekly podcast. I, 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 maybe you could, but you're going to have to be very good and very specialized to do it with a weekly podcast. A weekly podcast can be part of a successful business, but it can't be the core of a successful business in my view anyway. Um, will they develop truly valuable products to sell? So once they decide to monetize what they're doing, even if they have a lot of people, there's people out there with podcasts way bigger than me. They don't make any money because they can't effectively monetize it. I mean, I don't understand why they can't, but they can't. Some of the most, quote, successful podcasts on the planet make no money. They have millions of listeners and they make no money. I just, I, you know, they make some money, but they don't, they make less money than I do with 150,000. I'll put it that way. Uh, significantly less. And it, it doesn't make any sense. They should be able to make more money than they know what to do with and then do good shit with it and expand their empires, you know, in a most positive way possible, but they don't. So you, if you don't know if they're going to be able to develop a valuable product to sell, then you don't know if they're going to be successful even if they have a lot of listeners. How committed are they to success? Do they even know anything about Subject XYZ? They came to you and said, I'm going to do a podcast about Subject XYZ. Is there total knowledge? They wrote two books on it yesterday and they're excited about it. That doesn't even mean they won't succeed, but they're less likely to succeed unless they have that ability to continue to grow with knowledge faster than they need to produce content based on it. Will they use drugs and squander their initial success? 
I mean, who knows? Maybe they'll get successful, sort of. They'll make a little bit of money. Maybe they have a drug problem you don't know about. They'll go out and really get doped up because they have the extra money, and they'll blow their whole life away. You don't know. Uh, do they have a freaking clue about running a business? The, the operation level of a business? And is their chosen topic diverse enough for them to be able to podcast at the frequency necessary to engage the audience? Or is it going to be the same thing over and over and over again? And on the last one, let me tell you this. You don't even have an idea. You have no idea. I was told there was no way I could do a show a day for very long. And you see how that worked out. Like, just, you're going to run out of stuff to talk about. And I feel like we keep incredible diversity on the show. After 1,900 plus episodes, we still have incredible diversity. We still bring you new stuff. So, But are they going to be innovative enough to make that happen? Or can they make what they're doing so good that even though it's repetitive and the same shit over and over again, that it'll work? Like Dave Ramsey. I mean, I could, I could go sit in and do a, a Dave Ramsey show. I could even bite my tongue and say exactly what Dave is going to say when I disagree with it. Because it's so formulaic. It's the same thing. But he has millions of people listening to him. Now, he's on radio, not podcast, but you still get the point. And he's very, very successful. So there's no way to know the answer to any of those questions. The only person that can figure them out is the person that's asking them. In my business, I am the key variable. And in any business, the, the core entrepreneur is the key variable. This has led me to 12 rules I'm going to discuss today. Rules that I've kind of built my life around and my businesses around over the years. Rules I've continued to refine and make more specific to me. And that means while they can be generally applicable to you, you can't see them as concrete rules. You have to adapt them and use their thinking to develop rules for your business. See, that's why I'm not in the business of selling business blueprints. A lot of money there. And I could make, a, I could make more money... If I just did a full-on podcast about nothing but how you can get rich on the Internet every day. By now, I would be making... If, I, if that's what I was doing, I would be making a million dollars a year, and I would have to use some of it for emotional counseling because I know I'm being a lying, deceiving prick. I, I really would. I would have to be a lying, deceiving prick to constantly put out content like that. It was basically, you can do it, and you can do it, and, you, and I don't know if you can do it. I honestly don't know. The you know few business shows a year I do, plus five minutes with Jack is an archive. That's what I can do and be true to who I am and not lie to you. So when you say to me, do you think blank business will work? I have no idea when you ask me that. But my gut at that moment in time, no matter how good the idea is, is no, it's not going to work. Why do I say that? Because you're asking the question. The fact that you're asking me if, if I think your business idea is going to work means you don't have the answers to the, the questions that you need to have answered to judge for yourself whether this business is right for you and you should be doing it. So I think at that moment, if you plunge straight into it, you're likely to fail, and I'll still tell you I could be 100% wrong because people do it and become wildly successful. Okay, But what you should be saying to yourself is, how can I make this idea work? And when you have answers to that, my opinion won't mean shit. And when you get to that point, most likely, you're going to succeed. When you can come to me and say, this is my idea, this is the way I'm already implementing it, this is why I believe that it's going to work, these are my plans when things fail, and at some point I realize I just have to give this a shot. You're probably going to succeed. 
Your success might end up a year from now looking nothing like you initially thought it would. There may be major shifts and changes, but since it's well thought out as a plan of attack, you're going to be able to adapt to those things, if that makes sense. So let's talk about Spirico's 12 Rules of Business. This is not my number one rule, but I made it my number one rule today. In fact, these rules are in no particular order, um, except this one, because I'm going to be hard on planning and intention and, and knowledge today. And so I want to temper it with the first rule, and that is you can improvise your way to success, but only a plan makes you sustainable. Because I think for many business people, for many people that want to start a business, whether it's a podcast, a YouTube channel, like a content production business, or a crafting business, making handmade pens, I don't know, whatever you come up with, I think there's a lot to be said for those initial stages just going out and do a bunch of low-risk shit and try to get somebody to pay attention to it and kind of figure out your craft and your model kind of going along as you do it. Because you have nothing to risk and nothing to lose that way. You're not, you're not phoning up your boss and saying, hey, jackass, I quit, you stupid jerk. I'm going to go out and make pens for a living. And then the next day going, shit, i got to sell 20 pens a day to pay the base bills here. I'm not sure how I'm going to do that since I've never sold one. You're not doing that. You're making someone selling it to your friends and family and, and, and kind of, and you've heard so, and I'm not saying that's a good business model because it's so easily replicated. But if you put the right spin on it, pun intended, maybe it is. Okay. Anyway, so when you, when you kind of go at it that way, all of a sudden one day you can kind of wake up into, gee, I have a cash flow. My business is somewhat scaling already, even though I'm not making a conscious effort for it. In a lot of ways, that's how this show became a success. We went for a very modest success in our first six months. 1,000 listeners. 1,000 listeners. And it was before I ever heard of the 1,000 true fans model, so I had nothing to do with that. It just was an easy number that I thought we could attain, and I engaged the audience in attaining it through the Listener Appreciation Contest, and we doubled the goal. We hit 2,000 at the end of the year, which was six months into the show. But a lot of it at that time, I didn't know what the MSB was going to look like. I didn't know what I was going to charge for advertising. I didn't know where I was going to get advertisers. I was running other big companies. So I just kind of fell into success. But when I started getting emails that said, because you said this, I did this, and that worked, and thank you because my life is better. We just heard about that from Scott Adams with unexpected physical actions, right? I went, this is something I can turn into a real business if I want to. And at that point, instead of just some basic structure, I outlined the entire structure. I put it with an intention. And at that six-month period when we had 2,000 members, I said in the next year, I'm going to go full-time with this business. And I did. And I did. I introduced the MSB that year. We did great with it. I worked for another year with my partners, sold out my interest in the other companies, and went to work full-time with this. But if I had just kept kind of going along... Right. If I had continued to just, to just improvise and not really set concrete plans and goals and things like that, then it would have never become what it was, was capable of becoming. So you kind of fall into your success, but once you find it, you got to anchor and you got to build. You got to stop worrying about. I had seven other ideas. Well, screw that. If you do this one right, you'll be able to try anything else you want. And when you fail at it, it won't matter. So do this one right. 
And again, the reason I put that at the beginning is I think for many of you, it's the best way to get started. Don't worry about failure. Don't put yourself in a position where failure is going to hurt you very bad. And start trying things and figure out your craft, figure out your business model. Just fumble into it if you have to. But when you find it, when it starts to work, anchor down. When it doesn't work, try something else. Or ask yourself, why isn't it working? And try something else within it. You can go, you can try something else inside of what you're doing, or you can go a totally different way. Okay, now we're going to get a little bit tougher. Next one, follow your passion. But understand, passion doesn't pay the bills. So I am what I consider a hybrid in this world of people that speak about business and entrepreneurship. We have two camps, I think, in this world. And one is follow your passion is terrible advice. It's feel-good nonsense. It's stupid bullshit. You should go out and deliver to the market what it wants and follow concrete numbers. And if you can make a million dollars picking up dog shit, whether you're passionate about it or not, then that's a good business model for you. Then you got the other people that say, there's nothing more important than following your passion. It's all about following your passion. And if you follow your passion, you're going to succeed. Like the law of magnetism or the law of attraction or something like that is kind of how they make it out to be. I'm a believer that there's no reason in this world that you can't follow your passion and address the market's needs, wants, desires, and the reality of the marketplace. And those two have to come together. And that no entrepreneur will be as fulfilled and successful as one who manages to get those two together. When you can be passionate about what you're doing and successful because you're following the rules not of business but the market itself, then you're almost unstoppable. Especially people like many of us who are not going to just quit their job, um, take an early retirement lump sum and throw it into a, a franchise and you know all of a sudden I'm running a Domino's pizza or some shit like that. People that are actually going to do what I said in the first rule. Well, I'm going to figure out what I want to do and I'm going to ease into it. I'm going to start part-time and then I'm going to flip the switch and go full-time. Um, if you aren't doing something you're passionate about with that, and let me redefine passion a little bit. So when you're a 14-year-old boy and That pretty little girl smiles at you the way you never expected she would, and she likes you in a way that you never thought she would. And the first time she touches your hand, and you burn with passion like that. I think a lot of times when people talk about, or when you when you actually find that first true love, the woman you want to marry or the man you want to marry, I think a lot of people, when you say follow your passion in business, they're looking for something that they have that much emotion about. Well... When you have mature relationships and you do find that person that you want to marry, generally it doesn't start out that way. You grow as a couple and the passion grows. But there has to be a certain amount of attraction, a certain amount of interest in the beginning that cultivates the relationship. When I say follow your passion in business, that's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about you sit back and go, I want to do X, Y, Z. Oh my God, do I want to do X, Y, Z. I'm talking about... I think I can make this work, and you start getting excited, and your initial passion may be that it can free you from what you don't want to be in right now. It may not. Be, it may be something you kind of seem dispassionate about, but if there's enough passion for the action and the result, then it can work. It can be a Domino's Pizza franchise. I wouldn't do that, but I'm saying it could be that. 
It could be something you really don't want to do if you have enough passion for the, the, the potential and the result and what it would mean. Maybe it's going to be really big and create jobs and you're passionate about job creation. Maybe you're going to be creating jobs. In, so, so let's say, let's just try to understand the multi-dimensions of passion in business. Let's say you live in kind of a small, you know, small community and uh, it, it, there's not a lot of jobs there and not a lot of opportunity there, and you realize that if your business plan works, you would employ about 25 people. You know, a little small company, but 25 people is no, no joke. And you realize that there's only about, let's say, a 1,000 people in your community. Just a 1,000 people in your community, and, and you could end up employing 25 of them. You do a little bit of math there without the common core, and that's 2.5% of your community. And if you understand business, you understand that if, if, if 2% more, 2 to 3% more people in my community have a job and earn an income and spend that in my community, that might create at least as many more jobs. And, and usually the multiplier is higher. If you create 25 jobs, really new jobs that didn't exist, that pay well enough for people to make a decent living on and at least pay their basic bills with in a community, it will usually flip over at least twice. All right, and, and it may be that you're figured out how to make making homemade soap scalable. Again, none of these are real ideas. They're just honestly maybe not the best ideas to, to make the point, the effect. And that's what you're going to do. So you set that up and you go in and you create that business and you don't really give a damn about soap, but you understand the market, you understand the opportunity, you're good at it, you have your own formulations. Instead of being a little two-man show doing it, mom and dad, you're going to actually build a real production facility with these you know, all-natural soaps. And you build that business to a few million dollars a year, you're employing 25 people, you have a real storefront all, but you don't really give a damn about soap. But you're passionate about creating that business and creating that opportunity and creating those jobs and impacting your community that's just as good as being passionate about making soap but you have to have some passion for what you're doing or you're never going to get through the trials that are going to come when you start a business you're going to go through a crucible you're going to feel like it's not going to work and sometimes it's not going to work And at that point, instead of continuing to just beat your head on it, you have to adapt and figure out, well, do I go a completely different way here? And then that passion for having success drives me in a totally different direction. Or do I make an adjustment in my passion for the impact I'm trying to make or the product I'm trying to develop drives me to correct and make the correction? If you don't make the correction, you can work as hard as you want. You're still dead. Okay? The next thing, and you got to really understand this, especially, especially, If you're going to have employees or partners, no one will ever care about your success more than you do. Just like I say with preparedness, no one will ever care about your safety and your preparedness and taking care of you more than you will. If you have entrepreneurial DNA, if you have entrepreneurial blood, then you're the employee that your, your boss wishes they had 10 more of and they'll never have 10. They'll never have two. This is why that type of employee is so hard to find. If you're the employee that's working when everybody left and you're not even getting paid overtime, but you know it needs to be done and you get it done, if you're actually concerned about the success of the company you work for because you realize if they don't succeed, you lose your job. And I don't just mean like, oh, gee, they said that orders are down. I mean, you're actually, when you see things that are causing loss to the company on a financial level, you realize that's not good because long-term it'll hurt you. When you're always willing to go, then you have entrepreneurial DNA. 
And what will happen is you think other people do. And when you figure out that you're going to go off in your own direction and you find like a key person that you want to make part of what you're doing, and you even maybe identify them as being sort of that way, you think they're going to come into your business and care about it and work as hard on it as you will. They won't. They won't. And this can bite you in a lot of ways, just from a morale standpoint. You'll get very, very excited about what you're doing, and you'll go tell a loved one or a friend or a person you really respect. And they might not even say it's a bad idea or it's not going to work, or you know, even if it's already working, you know, but you got this new project you're going to roll out or whatever. They might just be a little bit meh. They're just not really excited about it. And you're like, geez, I thought this was great. You can't do that either. You have to realize no one's going to work as hard, no one's going to care as much. And that makes the, the, the battle tough. And that to get, to get out, of a, out of employees what you get out of yourself, you'll need at least two. As you build a business and you start to say, well, I'm going to start adding employees to it, if you could do something completely in a day, the, the, the person that you hire probably can't, with some exceptions. If they have a skill set, you don't. Right. So if you if you're high, if you all said, well, we need a in-house developer now and you don't have any development skills. Well, obviously, they can do more development a day than you could because they have a skill you don't. But you almost have to think about it like, well, if I could do development, how much could I get done? Understanding what I do about development and realize that they're going to get half of that, maybe 60 percent of that done. If they're really good, 65, because it's not their business. It's a job. People take jobs because they don't want to have to do the commitment necessary to run a business. They don't want the risk, but that's only part of it. See, people really know that there is a certain level of commitment required beyond just the risk of failure to be successful as an owner. That you own it. That it's all you. It's like the difference between football and wrestling. And I don't mean wrestling. I mean wrestling, like high school wrestling. When you play football and your team loses, even if you made an error or two, if you didn't quite play your best that day, whatever, it's still a team effort. And, you know, you don't really get blamed for the loss. And you don't really blame yourself for the loss. When you're wrestling and all of a sudden you're pinned, it's just you. That's entrepreneurship. It's just you. You don't get to blame anybody else. You never get to phone it in. No one covers for you. There's no one to pick up the slack, especially the early stages when you're in the building phase, before you have a company that has a structure and an operations and employees to do it for you if you're going that route. You, you don't have anybody to, to, lay, to, to lean on, anybody to rely on, and no one's ever going to care as much as you do. And if you don't, the reason that's important is if you don't accept that, you'll believe promises. You'll spend money you shouldn't. And you'll get demotivated when you should be very motivated. All of those things are dangerous to a new business. Next, good customers are better than gold. Bad customers are cancer. Irradiate them. Especially new businesses. They have a shitty customer. And they'll do anything to keep them anyway. It makes them miserable. It takes them away from their good customers. It's a drain. They almost are always unprofitable in the end. Now, let me put, there's always common sense here. I had customers, specifically when I was in, in, in the tech industry, who I thought were dicks. But those customers made us lots of money. They were dicks because they felt they had the right to be dicks because they did so much business with us. 
And in some in some ways, you, you might have to tolerate that, especially in the beginning, because cash flow is king. So there is the exception, but it's, it's actually the rare exception. The, the, the pain-in-the-ass customer that spent $35 with you, and your profit on that was $20, bucks, that's constantly bitching, must be fired. They must be turned away. You must tell them to go piss off. I'm going to go to Better Business Bureau, and I'm going to... Here's a template to write it up. Here, I suck. I already wrote it for you. Go. Piss off. Goodbye. They will destroy your business. You Because you're going to have 200 good customers and five bad ones, and you'll spend 80% of your time and resources on the five bad ones. They have to go. It's very counterintuitive for a new entrepreneur to understand that. Generally speaking, because they've worked for a company, most people that go into their own business, they're not naturally born. They go to a company, they work, they develop skill set, they develop knowledge, and they develop a distaste for being told what to do. But they also have a certain amount of programming being told what to do. And this person goes from a situation where if they had told any customer of the company they were employed by, you know what, I don't think we need your business anymore, we're really tired of you, and we would, we would really recommend you go buy from our competitor, they would get fired. And they haven't made the complete switch in their head yet that that's not the case anymore. That programming runs freaking deep because it starts all the way in kindergarten where they tell you to sit straight in your chair, dress a certain way, raise your hand before you speak. You can't take a piss without permission. All of that shit's in your head. And you need to begin a major decoupling from that. And one of them is recognizing toxic customers and saying, I don't need your business. And trust me, I've done it. I've done it. I've done it with one advertiser on the show over the years, and I've done it with a couple dozen, probably three or four dozen individuals that were like MSB members. Well, you need to do this because I'm a member. And you look it up, and the guy's joined last month. He's doing a $5 a month. And I'm not putting that down, but this guy's already eaten up like an hour of my time for $5. I don't know about you, but I don't work for freaking $5 an hour. I just don't. And the requests are, un it's not like I'm actually screwing up. The requests are unreasonable. I'm sorry, you're hereby banned from the, you're not even allowed to be a customer. Anymore. I'm purging your record. You can't join. If I see you join, I'll cancel your account. Um, I don't want you as a customer. Oh, the outrage. Oh, the absolute outrage. And what you have to be is somewhat dispatched. On some levels, it's delicious, right? Because you don't understand. I'm, you're not going to do anything. You're not going to complain. So that's the thing. It's your company. You complain. Who are you going to complain to? I don't care. There's nothing you can do. Goodbye. Go out and write up a thing that I, I, I fired you as a $5 a month customer. And, and, and point out that you're too stupid to use a fake name if you really want the product that's signed back up. I don't care. But God, until you make that switch, that's difficult to do. That's very difficult to do. So you, you have to understand that toxic customer syndrome. And you have to eradicate it. Unless they're worth so much money, they're worth tolerating for a time. And here's what you do with the, toler the customer like that. You build your business on their cash flow until your business is completely stable and you no longer need them. And then you don't kick them out because if they're that big, they probably can be trained. But then you push back. So you know what? We're, if, if you want us to continue serving you, we're not going to do things this way anymore. And watch the if you're face to face, watch the face. I mean, just it's a mixture of outrage and shock, 
And then not sure what to say about this because I was sure that this person was under my thumb. And they're not. And they probably have a lot of other, this is usually bigger companies that are like this, they have a lot of other companies under their thumb and they're used to just getting their way all the time. And they may say something like, well, we can probably find another supplier. You say, well, I, I would hate for you to do that, but if that's what you feel you need to do, then you can go do that. Because if I'm going to serve you, I need to be able to serve you the way that we do business. Here's how we do business. We've done a good job for you for this long. However, whatever it is, you're abusive to my people. Every single time you come to us for a price, you, you're giving me the bullshit about sharpening my pencil and going out to bid and whatever. I always give you a fair price. You're, you know, whatever it is. You, you're rude to, to my phone support people. Whatever it is. You expect things that we never promise and we're not going to give you without you paying for them. We can either start being more clear in our communications and you can understand what you're getting. And if you want more, tell me up front and we'll add it to the bill. But if we're going to continue this adversarial relationship instead of a partnership with a supplier and a vendor, then you know what? I don't need your business. And you might find that that customer becomes the best customer you ever had. You can afford that investment with a customer that spends thousands of dollars a month. You can't afford that with a customer that spends 30 bucks one time. Those customers, here's your money back, go away. Never do business with me again. And I, I learned this from my father. My father ran a gas station. Guy came in, bought a set of tires. Old man puts the tires on a truck, puts the truck down off the lift, And says, you know, it's going to be this much. And the guy said, you didn't say that much. He said, the old man's like, listen, man, I told you. I don't remember the numbers. The tires are 15 bucks a piece. Mounting's five bucks. That's 40 bucks plus tax. This is what you owe me. The guy says, I'm not paying you. The old man says, no problem. Turns the lift, lifts the freaking guy's vehicle back up in the air so he can't drive it away. Grabs an impact wrench. And he starts to pull the tires. What are you doing? He says, I'm going to put your shitty tires back on. You owe me nothing. You can leave. The guy pulls his money out, pays him. Right? So the guy gets mad, he backs out, and he's just about to leave. And the old man's talking to him, and he says, he's walking away now. And the guy says, you know what, I'm never coming back here. And he, the, the, my dad's facing me, right? And he's walking away from the guy in his vehicle, he's yelling at him out the window. And I see this smile come up one side of his face, just a half, like a Grinch smile, half a Grinch, right? And he just turns around, does a perfect about face because he's a military guy like me. And says, you know what, buddy? I really appreciate that. Thank you very much for never coming back here. Never forgot that. Never forgot that. Because that guy is, not, you don't want him to come back. You don't want business like that. There's, if you have a viable business, no one customer makes or breaks your business. And it's a very difficult thing. That's why I spent more time on it than the other ones. Very difficult thing for, for people coming out of employment to understand. Next one, if you start saying things will pick up with no plan, you're soon going to be out of business. I always know when an entrepreneur is not going to make it when they're in that situation. When I'm talking to them, I don't care what they are, real estate agent, financial advisor, podcaster, whatever, and they're having a little bit of shortage of cash flow. And they say, well, things will pick up sooner. When things pick up, I'll be able to do this. And you go, well, what's your plan? Well, no, things will pick up. You're, you're done. You're sunk. If you don't have the momentum, that you're, especially when you already had it and it goes away, then you need to take action now. That could be 
revamping what you're doing, doing a better job, going back to your customers that are still with you and saying, honestly, am I letting you down in some way? Is there some way that I need to do a better job and start doing a better job so the new customers are retained better like they used to be in the old days? I mean, there's a million things that it could be that you need to do. It might be this revenue model has kind of run its course. I need to put another revenue model into this business and not confuse my revenue model and my business, which we'll get to in a bit. But when, when you hear somebody say that, so if you ever find yourself thinking that, well, things will pick up soon. Well, then you better have a plan to make them pick up or you're going to be out of business. Plain and simple. Next one. You have to be a lifelong student of your subject but learn by both study and application. So you always have to be becoming more knowledgeable about your industry, your sector, your client base, what it is that you do, uh, the skills that go along with what you do. So for me, I want to improve my ability to communicate beyond just my knowledge of self-sufficiency and self-reliance topics. I want to be a, a better communicator tomorrow than I am today. But I don't sit around studying it for two weeks and then go try it. You're studying and learning and doing it all together all the time. Because if your business is not in a, in a state of improvement, then it's in a state of decline. Just like I tell you about the sliding scale in life. Either you're working to better improve your position in life, your self-sufficiency, your self-reliance, your independence, and your personal liberty. You're either working on all that shit or you're getting less of it every day. Because there's no static in life. Well, that is on turbocharge in business. If your business doesn't have momentum and continue to grow, once it goes into decline, if you don't correct it quickly, it will go into a terminal spiral of decline. And it will either fail or it will become a fragment of what it was and you'll go from having a really successful business to one that just gets you by. It's like self-employment at a job, which is what you didn't want in the first place and why you did it. All right? You, you have to have that passion for learning, that passion for improvement, that passion for maintaining momentum. And that comes from not just learning new things, but applying them. And you apply a little bit of it and see if it works. And if it doesn't work, you apply something else. You don't go apply a whole shitload of it, alienate your entire client base, and ruin your business. Whether you think you're right or not, if you're a country music singer, you don't go insult the President of the United States on the eve of war. Remember that? Dixie Chicks. Now, if you're a pop music singer, you can probably do that, and it won't really matter. It won't hurt your career. It may not help it, but it won't do that bad. But if you're in country music, and you have a Republican President on the eve of war that you insult in a foreign country, whether you as an audience member believe that or not, you will Dixie-chick your career. So you have to be careful about what you say and do with knowledge of the audience you're speaking to. And that comes from being that lifelong student, learning, improving, and bettering, and applying small amounts at a time, and not doing anything drastic in one fell swoop that then you can't take back. Because people, once you have people trust you, if you break that trust, you almost never get it back. And you also can't go stagnant. Those are the two sides of that coin. You can't just stay where you're at doing things the way you are, the same old, same old, over and over again. You start to bore people. You start to wear people out. Next, you'd better be able to explain your revenue model to a 12-year-old. And I'll caveat that with, okay, I've met some amazing entrepreneurs that when you say what's your revenue model, they have this you know base revenue model, 
And then they have all of these backends and foldovers, and you have to get out a spreadsheet to explain the long-term cash flow. And, and I mean, it's brilliant. Like, it's, it's like, it, it, it's, it, it, it's, you know, CFO, high-level economic understanding. And, and I'm not putting that shit down, right? But that core revenue model, you better be able to explain it to a 12-year-old. So he says, well, what's your, what's your main revenue model for the Survival Podcast? Well, I have three main sources of revenue at the Survival Podcast. First, I put out great content every day, and I get lots of people listening to me. Then, like any media outlet, I reach out to people that have products that my listeners would be interested in, and I sell advertising. I run banners and on-show advertising, and they pay me money, and as long as they get results, they stay as sponsors. If I lose a sponsor, I go get another one. If I lose them too fast, I'm doing something wrong. I need to either find better sponsors or put out better content and build more listeners. So that's revenue model one. Revenue model two, I have members who really love what I do that voluntarily pay a membership fee to help support my efforts. In return, they get discounts from those sponsors and from people that I can't fit on the sponsor list because I can only take so many sponsors. So I go out and negotiate discounts, I create premium content, I do things like that, and then people pay for access to that content, and they stay customers because if they use the discounts, the membership pays for itself. And third, I do basically affiliate advertising through Amazon.com where people can make their Amazon purchases through my link if they like my content to thank me for doing it, and I also review products on Amazon that people can buy. That's a new piece of revenue model. But there's nothing about that revenue model that's difficult to understand. Um, I, I don't have to give you a, a, a lesson in Economics 101, let alone Economics 401, for you to get it. You don't have to have an MBA to understand it. If you explain it to anybody of reasonable IQ, they may not get that it works, but they get what it is. They understand how it works. They might think, people really pay you to talk? Because maybe they don't resonate. You're not my target audience, you know? You're a New York yuppie that keeps your clothes in your oven because you have no space for them. You don't, you know, you're you're a, a, a wacky liberal nut job, and I'm a anarcho libertarian. You're not gonna. I understand that you don't understand why people like what I'm saying, but you should still be able to understand, even if you're a 12 year old junior high school student, the mechanism of the revenue model. If you can't define it like that, you haven't defined it for yourself, and it's not going to work. It's not going to work. When I when I ask somebody their revenue model, and they kind of like think about it, and I was like, gee, you're not ready to answer. Go away. And I don't mean to be a dick, but go away and figure this out for yourself. Because I can't help you improve it until you know what it is. right? I, I actually have a lot of uh, empathy when somebody says, I don't know yet. Okay, you know that you don't know. That's fine. If you had asked me, what's your revenue model for the Survival Podcast three months in, I was pretty close to fleshing it out at that point. One month in, I don't know, maybe advertising. I don't know how I'm going to do it yet. I don't know. Membership wasn't even in my, my sights at that point. So there's a point where you don't know. That's a developmental phase of a lot of content-driven businesses. But at the point where you think, well, I'm going to do this full-time or whatever, you've you got to freaking be able to answer that question. Very cut and dry, very to the point, very specific. And then you can get fancy with cross-sells and upsells and retention numbers and all that other spreadsheet shit. And that stuff's important. I do it. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about that base revenue model. All right? Um, next, 
Working hard at the wrong things is worse than doing nothing at all. I've seen people from everything from tech businesses to farm businesses working their ass off on the wrong things or doing them poorly and feeling like, if I just work harder, this is going to work. No, it's not. You're going to go broke faster. You're going to get demotivated faster. You're going to ruin your life faster. You're going to ruin your business faster. You're going to ruin your relationships faster because you're doing the wrong things. I think of it like our old friend from the NBA who doesn't play anymore, Shaquille O'Neal. Shaquille O'Neal was terrible at foul shots, so much that, uh, what's his name, Don whatever here, uh, Don Nelson, uh, from the Mavericks developed a defense called the Hack-A-Shack defense. So as Shaq gets the ball near the net, we just grab his arm and throw it to the ground. We foul the shit out of him, and we just don't let him take the shot. Because if we do, he's going to put two in every time, and otherwise he's going to go to the line, and he's probably going to miss at least one, if not both of them. So Shaq, to his credit, starts practicing free throws. And eventually he did get better, so don't correct me on this. But initially... This guy had no art to his shot. He was practicing free throws poorly. So all he got was better at being shitty at free throws. It took changing the technique and learning to do things a little bit differently, even for a great athlete, to eventually sort of counter that type of a defense. And humor work, too, where he showed up on the, on the court at a Mavericks game with a clown nose on, and he was calling it clown ball, you know. Um, and that's being adaptive. But if you're doing the wrong things in your business and you keep doing them harder, you're going to go broke harder. If you have a product and you show it to a hundred people that are the right type of people for your product and nobody wants it, and you say, I know what I'll do. I'll go advertise and make sure that a million people see my product. You haven't yet figured out either the product's wrong, the message is wrong, the price is wrong, the market's not there. You haven't figured it out yet. And if you work harder at it instead of smarter at it, you're going to go bankrupt. And I see it all the time. I see people with farm businesses doing all kinds of brute work, but none of them are revenue generating. They're turning compost every day for two hours a day. I'm working hard. Okay, see, when you have a job and you get a paycheck and you're told to go turn that compost and, and punch your time clock and people see you sweating and working really hard, like, that guy's a hard worker. That's great. When you run your own business, no one gives a shit that you work hard. No one cares. It doesn't get you, it, no one cares in any meaningful way that puts money on the table for you. So you have to identify the things you should be working hard at. Working in, on your business versus in it. But I'm telling you, if you feel like you're working, if you feel this way with your business, I'm working so hard and I just can't get ahead, then you need to step back, emotionally decouple, because that's one of the dangers of being passionate about your business. You have to, the, the passion's great to fuel the effort, but when something's not working, you need to go Buddhist monk, or Vulcan, whatever works for you, disconnect, step back like a consultant who doesn't give a shit about your business, just analyzes it, and you have to figure out where you're doing it wrong. Because pouring more gas on that fire is only going to burn you. It's not going to set your market on fire at that point. You're already failing. Hope that makes sense. Next, 
if you're talking, marketing, targeting someone, anyone who's disinterested, find someone else fast. Because the other thing I said, when you talk to a hundred people and nobody's interested in your product, if you just go advertise to a million, you'll go bankrupt. It depends. Have you misidentified your market? Have you misidentified your market? So, I mean, or have you under-identified your market? So, an example would be the company that I recently had a guest on for, Coolbot. You know, these walk-in coolers. And their market was, in their minds, farmers that produce a lot of produce that needed a walk-in cooler, and this is a cheaper alternative to a walk-in cooler. Because they were, they were correct with that, they didn't have the wrong demographic. They only limited themselves to that demographic. They were able over time to find all these other demographics, hunters and hunt clubs and homesteaders and stuff like that. But what if, for shits and giggles, they had misidentified the demographic? What if farmers were just, like, there's enough, what if farmers made more money than they thought they did? I know they don't, but let's say they did. And let's say that the, the cost of a walk-in cooler was just not that important enough to them to care about doing self-builds for shit like this. And that the, the, the market that he needed to be in was the homesteader market, the DIY market. That had to be their market, and they were wrong about it. So instead of broadening their, their group of, of, of prospects, they went all in on the, the original group of people that weren't interested. I was just on a podcast with a guy uh, to do an interview. When it comes out, because he, he records and puts them out over time. Uh, when it comes out, I'll, I'll, I'll promote his show for him and all. But here's the gist of it. So he's doing this podcast for college students. And uh, it, it's directed at the students. And I won't get into anything more specific than that at this time. And it, it turns out that the majority of the feedback he's getting are from college professors. And that's a problem for him. We have this conversation after the interview's over. Because I'm not reaching the people that I'm trying to reach. I said, so the feedback, the excitement, the people that are actually interested in what you're doing are the college professors, uh, the college professors who have jobs and money versus the college students who don't have jobs and are, don't have money and spend the money they do have on booze and dope and partying. So you think you have a problem. I say you have a targeting mismatch. That there's tens of thousands of hundreds of thousands of college professors who live in a world of self-improvement, who want to be better professors, who want to be better educators. And even though I think that market long-term has its problems and the whole thing's going to come on its head in a way, a lot of, lot of string left in it. Maybe your targeting's wrong. So if you, if not only is the people you're not talking to not talking back to you, other people are. Stop waving them away and seeing them as an annoyance, and start saying, "How can I tailor this directly to them and reach more of them?" Especially if they're a better demographic. Because who would you rather sell things to? All things being equal, college students or college professors? Who has more money? Who has more money? Who has three months a year off? No, they don't. Shut up. Yes, they do. I know some of them don't because they choose not to, but in general, yes, they do. They have a lot of time off. A lot of free time to buy shit, go places, do things. Really great retirements. What a great lifelong customer. Your customer base is, is a person who is paid well, 
who has a, almost a guaranteed job, if they stay at it long enough, will become a guaranteed job in something called tenure. And then they have a great retirement. That's a great customer to have. But you want the college student because, well, you care about them. Okay, so here's the passion lesson coming back into this. This guy really does care about students. He really does want students to do better. He, he's, he's specifically concerned about students that are having mental problems getting through school, that are, that, are, that are having these traumas and things like that. Not necessarily the snowflakes, but the kid that, you know, their, their dad is on their ass all the time and they feel like if they get a B, they've ruined their world or whatever. And, and these young people really feel this way. Well, if they're not listening, but the professors are, then you can help them by helping the professors do a better job. And now you're still pursuing your passion. But if you're talking to a group of people that aren't listening to you, start talking to other people. And then you either adjust the audience or the product or the message or all three. But you don't just keep ramrodding the same shit over and over again. And do it fast. Next, every business can succeed. Feel good? Not done yet. Every business can fail. Every business has the potential to be successful, however you define that. Whether it's the limited success that I have, and I would call my success here limited. I'm one guy with one microphone and a wife that works part-time. I don't want employees. I actually consider myself an amazing success on my level because I have a lifestyle business. I do what I want to do, and I make enough money to fund it. Love that. But... Honestly, if I wanted to be big time, I'd be on AM radio, I'd be buying time, I'd have an engineer, I'd have an editor, I'd have a research staff, and I could probably build this into a multi-million dollar concern if that's what I wanted to do. I'd also have to not say things like shit when I really want to say things like shit. I'd have to do things that I don't want to do, but that's what it would take to build the platform to a higher revenue model. So any business can succeed, and it can succeed at any level if you're willing to do the work and make the compromises to get it there. But any business, no matter how large, can fail. Microsoft can fail. I know you're like, Microsoft fails all the time. That's not what I mean. Microsoft can go completely broke. Microsoft can fail as a concern. You don't think so? I could just start naming company names of companies that were almost as big that are gone now, but I won't. But any business can succeed and any business can fail. Why is that rule important? Because what it makes you do is two things. One, it gives you the impetus to not give up, to instead of quitting, figuring out why the business isn't working and making the adjustments. Two, as you succeed, it keeps you from being cocky and thinking you're untouchable. No one can touch you. No one can, you know, you still have to be willing to tell the asshole customer or maybe even a specific market segment, this isn't for you. Go away. But you can't believe that you'll never fail. Because then you will. Because then you'll, you'll get lazy. You'll get apathetic. You won't work as hard. And all of us do that at times. All of us take for granted that are successful as entrepreneurs sometimes take for granted what we have here and there. The key is not to never do it because you're going to. The key is to identify, wait a minute, I'm starting to slip here. And saying to yourself, self, you got to do better than that. The key is when you say something that's really wrong, uh, you put that out into the marketplace and you get an adverse reaction, you come back and you say, listen, we made a mistake. And you don't say, I'm sorry you were offended or I'm sorry you were upset. You say, I'm sorry we made this mistake. Unless you really believe it, and then you have to figure out how to deal with it without apologizing for it.
But you have to understand that. You can build a business that's doing $25 million a year, and it can fail. I worked for a company, and I helped build the business into about a $10 million company, and it failed. It failed because the owner skipped town with all the subcontractors' money, and they wanted to kill me, but it still failed. And the reality was this guy was a scumbag, but he also was smart, and he had already done things that were going to cause his business to fail, so he skipped town with the money, and he actually left the country. And he left with a few million dollars in his pocket. But if his business wasn't going to fail anyway, he would have never done that. I think he ended up in prison for it eventually. And he wouldn't have done that, but his business it was a $12 million business. I know another guy. His business at one time was doing a turnover of about $60 million a year. I wouldn't say his business has failed today because what he has, a lot of people would kill for, but his turnover is about $6 million. It's about 10% of what it was. And out of that, he's making a couple hundred thousand a year. He doesn't work hard for it. He has a few people still in the business doing all the work. But I look at that business and go, it's got a couple, three, four years left in it. He can't sell it for anything now. All of the competitors are bigger than him. They don't really get a lot by buying him out. Maybe he can. I don't know. But it's very much because he was a person that didn't believe his business could sell. His business could fail. And by the way, when his business was doing $60 million in turnover, he had offers on the table for $120, $130 million. Here, give it to us and go away. He so believed in what he was doing, let his passion overrun his brains. Because he could have went and done something else. He could have went and done something else. Any business can succeed and any business can fail. Next, a revenue channel or business unit is not a business. It's only a piece of one. So earlier I described my revenue model, three, three planks, and I have more revenue models than that, some directly connected to TSP and some more peripheral. But my business is not selling memberships. Okay? It's not. My business is not selling advertising, and my business is not affiliate marketing for Amazon. My business is content creation and delivery in the form of a podcast to people interested in self-sufficiency, self-reliance, independence, and liberty. That's my business. And when people can't separate their business from their revenue model or, or, or um, revenue channel or business units. See, I honestly look at Amazon at this point as not just being a revenue model. And not just being a revenue channel. I actually see it as a business unit within the business. It, it warrants its own treatment like a mini business, but it's still under the umbrella of the main business. And if it fails, it hurts the business, but it doesn't end the business. There's always something else that can be extended, plugged in in its place, whatever. New product developed. New revenue models developed. The business is the engine. It's, it's the, it's the, it's the hangar that the aircraft go into. And then that's why you work on the business instead of in the business. When you work in the business, you end up down in the details of the revenue channel where if you work the business as a unit and you make the business strong and thriving and successful, then you can, instead of getting down into the revenue model, you can sit up above it and go, 
oh, that's why this isn't working. We need to just add this or change this or shut this off. And you're able to do that very, very quickly and go, well, that worked. Let's do more of that. Oh, that, that, that made it angry. It made it worse. Uh, put it back. Now let's try this. Oh, okay, now that's the way to go. Okay, now let's do this. Okay, yeah, all right, good. And you spend very little time doing that because you're up here at this ops level of how the business actually delivers what it promises. My main concern every day isn't doing a review for an Amazon item. It's not making sure that the sponsors paid their bills. It's not exactly how much money came in from the MSB. It's not somebody that tried to renew or tried to get a membership and couldn't because something went wrong. All that shit has to be addressed. All of it has to be fixed. The main concern every day, do I produce an hour to two hours of solid content that's what my audience expects from me and make sure that gets delivered across multiple platforms and that all of the means of notifying people that the new show is available are enacted. That's it. And Does that content continue to be diverse? Does it continue to be engaging? Does it continue to, to, to light people on fire? Does it continue to make people take action? If I do that right, any individual revenue unit that declines or goes into failure or goes away can be replaced. If I fail at that top-line business, all the other shit is moot and eventually will fail, and you won't be able to replace it with anything. That's how you have to run a business. And it doesn't matter if it's a content creation business, a manufacturing business, a service business, a contracting business, a construction business. It doesn't matter. You have to have that defined. What is that delivery? What does that business do? And then the revenue models are within that umbrella. And last, most important rule of business that I've ever learned successful marketing is getting others to tell your story. Because, see, marketing is just telling a story. People think marketing is complicated. People who get four-year degrees in marketing from college, and they couldn't sell a freaking glass of water to a person with a, a, a fistful of dollars in the middle of a desert. They would talk themselves out of it. With a four-year marketing, they couldn't pull that off. But marketing is so dramatically simple. Marketing is explaining your story to others. You should be involved with us. You should listen to us. You should pay attention to us. You should buy our product because blah, 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 blah. But the key, the hook is always, this is how we did it. It's the Not that they do it right, but it's the About Us page on every website. You, When you have an affinity for a product or a service or a brand... And you know more about it than necessary for you to be willing to make the purchase. So, for instance, if I'm at a store and I'm looking at a bunch of fishing reels on a thing, and I pick them up, I kind of know what to look for in quality, even if it's a brand I never heard before, and I, 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 and I go, I need this for my rod. This is kind of a good price on this. I don't need anything spectacular. Yeah, this will work. But since my family has an affinity for Mitchell reels, And I know the whole story going back to them originally being made in France. And I have antique Mitchell reels. And I buy busted-ass antique Mitchell reels on uh, eBay. And I restore them at home. And if there's a Mitchell on the shelf, I'm looking at it hard. It's got a good chance of winning my business. Because I know its story. And it has a story in my family. 
So most of you that listen to this podcast with any regularity don't just know about this podcast. You know my story, my entrepreneur background, starting this in my car, building it to a full-time business in a year and a half. And when you tell somebody about the show and they say, well, survival podcast, what's that about? And you say, oh, it's not like you think it is. And you start telling them about me. That's the most successful marketing I've ever done. And I was a professional marketer. Because it's honest. Because it's real. I get tired of people going, what's your tips and tricks for marketing? I have no tips. I have no tricks. It's honesty. Real marketing is honesty. Now, there's a marketing science when you get up to like the you know, Fortune 100, Fortune 1000 level companies where, you know, they can do demographic targeting and you're back into the world of spreadsheets and all. And that to me is not marketing. That's market analysis and that's market targeting. Just pure, pure, clean marketing is having a story that's compelling enough for someone who hears it to become interested in it. And then if it's really effective, it's simple enough and compelling enough that a person who, who receives it, who engages with the company that put it out, who gets a satisfied experience, not only recommends the company, product, brand, service, etc. to a friend, but tells them the story. And when you're a rock star with it, they don't just tell your story, they tell theirs. When they say, well, this is how you guys do it. And when I started listening to it, I started doing these things. Or when I started using this product, I found out this. And it made my, I caught more fish. It made my life better. I lost weight. I quit my job and start my own business. Whatever it is. The, the, the odds that that referral result and at least that person taking a look are extremely high. And that's what you should be gearing your... See, what happens is people, they start reading books on marketing, they start listening to these internet guru assholes who are just con men. They're online car salesmen is all they are. They're worse. They're like online whole life insurance people is what they are. Um, man, they just... They get all confused. And they start looking for the slick angle and, you know, and what have it. Instead of saying, what is the core of what my company does. How are we able to do it better than our competitors? How were we able to create it? Where did the product, the idea, the service come from? Who are we? And you channel that into a concrete, understandable, simple message in one to two paragraphs. Because people can remember that. And if you don't think people can remember one or two paragraphs, okay, tell me the story of the three bears. Okay? Right? Tell me the story of the three pigs. And, and all of you are going, well, I can tell both of those stories. Well, they're longer than two paragraphs. Not a lot longer, but they're long. Why? They're ingrained in our memory. They have visual cues, cues and hooks. They mean something to us. They were told to us by our parents. We've told them to our children. If you're religious, tell me the basic story of Jesus' life. If you're Christian, I should say, not just religious. right? Anything like that, you understand. It's the simplicity of the story and the emotional connection that makes it possible for a person who hasn't even thought about it. 
You know, you might have heard the three bears the last time 20 years ago. Your kids are grown. You don't have any kids. You know, whatever. And somebody says, can you tell me the story of the three bears? Goldilocks and the three bears? Oh, yeah. Well, Goldilocks was going through the woods. And grasshopper and the ant, right? I mean, you could tell those stories. The messaging of your company has to be simplified down to that type of a format. This person is in business selling chickens. They raised them on their own property. You can go look at them. They, they had a full-time job, and now all they do is this. It's the best chicken I ever ate. We don't buy chicken from a store anymore. They're great to do business with. They're wonderful people. You're interested. Simple story. And it's easy to be repeated. You think of the most successful products in the world. They have messages like that. Even mega products, they get refined down to statements. Just do it. Right? Just do it. Nike. So what that product is about is getting shit done. From an athletic standpoint. Bigger company than I ever want to run, but it works. But you see where the, the bifurcation is and the small entrepreneur having the, the, the advantage To be that big, you can't be personal. If you're not that big, you have to be personal. That's your bonus rule. That's lucky 13 for you today. That when you are a small company, you have to be personal with your marketing to be successful. And I think one of the main reasons that small entrepreneurs fail is they try to emulate big companies with slogans and catchphrases and logos and shit. No. What you want to do is you want to sell who you are and what you are through a story and get other people to repeat that story for you and you will be successful. Well, if you enjoyed today's uh, today's show on business, you can help support mine. And you can help support mine through that business model I mentioned today. You can do your Amazon shopping through my link. I provide great content. You just go to tspaz, T-S-P-A-Z.com, instead of Amazon.com. You click one link, you end up on Amazon.com. You buy the stuff you were going to buy anyway. We get credit for it. It doesn't cost you any extra money. It's a pretty good business model. I've shared it with you. If you're going to use it in your own business, that's great. You can't buy from yourself, so get your customers to do that with you and continue to do it for me with buying. Um, I do put out an item of the day every day uh, on Amazon that I review. Today is called The Ringer. It's not the movie. It's a product for cleaning cast iron. It looks like a little piece of chainmail armor, like from chainmail for knight's armor, because it basically is. And it does a great job of cleaning and conditioning your cast iron pans. You can learn all about it in the review that I've placed today on TSPAS. You go to tspaz.com. you got one link for that and one link to see all the reviews. Click the review link. You'll see the latest review. See all the cool stuff that I review on TSPAS. So consider checking that out. And now for the song of the day. The year and the episode are 1947, so we are going all the way back to 1947. And think about the fact this is 2017. So this is 70 years ago. 70 years we're going back in time right now. And when I, when I play these songs from that long ago, I try to look at the context in history and the time. And what has just happened? World War II just ended two, two years ago. A lot of GIs are home. A lot of GIs are still overseas as part of the Marshall Plan and Reconstruction, slowly coming home. And what happens? You don't really see it yet, 
But what's happening right now in this country that becomes an entire generation? The baby boom. The baby boom. People are coming home and they're making babies faster than I think any time per capita they've ever been made in this country. Our parents are being born. Some of you guys, it's you being born. But a lot of us that are in our 40s, we're the children of the baby boom. And, and, and they're being born right now. I'll tell you what, that's why all this romantic music is so daggone popular right now. I mean, you go off and spend two or three years at war, and you come home to that sweetheart that didn't write you a Dear John letter, and you're getting married. You're putting on some of this here Francis Craig, and you're booming them babies out. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help me figure out how to live that better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. Spare